Welcome to PDBC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PDBC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series held on July 11, 2018, focusing on transforming your transfer pricing strategy in a post-tax reform world. The panelists for the webcast were Paige Hill, a PDBC tax partner and our U.S. transfer pricing practice leader, David Ernick, a PDBC tax partner focusing on transfer pricing issues, Chris Desmond, a PDBC tax partner focusing on value chain transformation, and Quinn Wynn, a PDBC tax partner focusing on international tax issues. This excerpt consists of a general discussion among the panelists on transfer pricing optimization, post-tax reform, and post-BEPS. Have a listen. David, maybe you can take us through a little bit of where you see the biggest areas of impact um, from a transfer pricing perspective with reform. Sure, Paige. And so before getting into the details of the actual changes to the transfer pricing rules, I want to take a big picture look at what we've got up on the slide and how the international tax architecture has changed after tax reform. And I think a lot of these changes were driven by the OECD's BEPS project and the focus and targeting of U.S. multinationals. Before December of last year, we didn't know exactly what we would get from tax reform, but we knew one of the key features would be strong base erosion protections. Mm -hmm. And I think you can see from this slide that TCGA, JA really loaded up on base erosion protections. <laughs> so we've got the base erosion and anti-abuse tax. That can apply where you're making material deductible payments to foreign parties. We've got the new foreign-derived and tangible income. It gives export in income of a U.S. corporation subject to a reduced effective rate. That's our version of an IP development incentive, like the patent box regime that a lot of other countries got. We nominally went to a territorial tax system, but now that's backstopped by a minimum tax in the form of the guilty provision, which taxes the, the non-subpart F income at above a 10% return on your tangible assets at a reduced effective rate. So all the current income of a U.S. corp will be subject to a certain minimum level of tax. Um, and of course, we've also got the transition tax for the old earnings, for the pre-2018 earnings. So it seems to me that both of those together address all the concerns regarding the so-called stateless income that was a focus of the BEPS project. And then we've also got the strong hybrid mismatch arrangements, which was also a key part of the, the BEPS project. And then also the, the new 163J um, limits on interest deductions to prevent earnings stripping. So I think when I look at all of these together, Paige, the message that Congress seems to be sending here is, well, we don't really trust transfer pricing and the arm's length principle by itself to protect our base. So we'd like to have some bright line objective rules to protect our base. So transfer pricing is still there. And on the next slide, I'll talk about the direct changes to the transfer pricing rules. But now it's really just the starting point for determining the allocation of income across countries. Now we've got all these other provisions layered on top of the transfer pricing rules, and they all raise a lot of new transfer pricing issues by themselves. And so, David, as a as a, the transfer pricing people that are out there in the audience, and, and there's a lot of in-house transfer pricing folks that are listening in, they're looking at this saying a lot of this is the international tax footprint, but each one of these things has an impact to our, our transfer pricing policy or how things are working related to each one of the intercompany charges. And so the, the role of like the VP of tax and the head of transfer pricing for a company, 
that has now escalated to a level that we've never seen before. And that role in the company is no longer a back office function. Agreed, these, yeah. these individuals now are going to be at the forefront of not only with decisions being made from the tax side, but now we're seeing, well, the business operating model is as important to think about in conjunction with your tax operating model because a lot of times we would think just tax answers here. Now you're going to have changes with your business operating model or you might have an acquisition or reorganization and those individuals need to be a part of those decision-making processes and also what's going to happen with the company because that will naturally have an impact on the tax operating model. So it's kind of like one of the biggest years of a lot of people's careers out there when it comes to making decisions on their company. And exactly it's, right, Chris. Yep. You know, I think we've seen a lot of focus on the very specific reform provisions, um, which we will spend a lot of time here talking about today. But, um, you know, David, you know, I think you'll talk a bit now about the, the some of the changes to 482, um, which haven't, you know, people haven't spent as much time, I think, talking about, but are pretty significant in terms of as companies work their way through these provisions, they really have to take these on and think about how they impact the, the work that they're doing. Yes, let's talk about that page. So what has changed in the transfer pricing rules and what hasn't? So going back to the 1994-42 regulations, we've had this aggregation rule saying that you can combine what is otherwise separate transactions and consider those taken as a whole if the interrelationship and that multiple uh, looking at multiple transaction in the aggregate is the most reliable method for determining the arm's length price, which is obviously a, a factual determination. The regulations also said the IRS will evaluate the results of the actual transaction, providing it's got economic substance, but they can also look at the realistic alternatives to that in determining the pricing. So we've had the, those principles since 1994. That's not new. We've got the site to the 2015 temporary regulations up there where the IRS says they clarified the aggregation pr principle. I think that's actually a substantial expansion of aggregation. I, I would refer to these as what are, what are called fighting regulations, meaning they, they seem intended to re reverse the results of prior court cases, in this case, the Veritas decision by the tax court. So we've had those principles for a while now. For whatever reason, as part of TCJA, Congress thought it was necessary to codify those principles, put them right in Section 482. It's not clear why they wanted to do that, since simply codifying a regulatory provision that's never been invalidated doesn't really do anything. It doesn't make it more powerful or, or stronger or anything like that. So I think that's not really a change. That, that's just codifying a, an existing regulatory principle. But I've been on panels recently with some IRS officials, and they do view that as a substantive change. So I would look for them to be more aggressive in how they apply both of those principles, even though technically it doesn't really look like a change to the transfer pricing rules. What is an actual change is in this last bullet point here, um, the expansion of the definition of intangible property, now to include goodwill, going concern, value, workforce, and place. Any other item, the value or potential value of which not attributable to tangible property or the services of any individual. And I just point out that as a technical matter, this amendment in TCJA amended the definition of intangible property in Section 936 that we're all familiar with. 936 is not there anymore. If you go to look for it in the code, there's no more Section 936. I, I didn't realize that until someone pointed that out to me. Um, the definition is now in Section 367. So as part of 
the omnibus bill back in March. They got rid of Section 936 as Deadwood, now moved that to Section 367. But I think the implications, Pedro, that expanded definition of, of intangibles and that codification of the IRS's preferred valuation principles means that we're going to have increased IRS scrutiny of these sort of transactions and, and restructurings. And what about from a different angle? Because I'm out there when I'm talking with clients and the clients are saying, so 42, it's, it's got a bigger net now. We're, we're, we're doing a lot of things other than the typical trademark, trade name, core IP that we would usually charge for in a in a transfer pricing exercise, should we be looking at, since we have a, a lower effective are there things that we should be looking for that we perhaps have not charged for in the past and we should charge for going forward? Is that part of what this is telling us? And that's where sometimes clients are asking, where should we go from here? And that's where we're coming in and starting to think through looking at that piece, especially for the IP, and trying to map what this means from a U.S. perspective from 482, also in conjunction with the international regime. I think that's what that's what it means, Chris. So the expanded definition of intangible property now in Section 367, along with the removal of active trader business exception in Section 367, Congress clearly trying to forestall any arguments that there's something that can go outbound without any compensation. So, so in light of that, David, what, what is the relevance of transfer pricing post-reform? Yeah, so when I when I look at transfer pricing after tax reform, I, I think there is a deceptively large impact on transfer pricing, even though the direct changes to the transfer pricing rules, as I said, were relatively modest, basically the expansion of the definition of intangible property. All those provisions, including the codification of aggregation and realistic alternatives, when I look at the score to the tax reform provisions, it doesn't seem like Congress intended this to be a big change. Score for those provisions was only to raise $1.3 billion of revenue over 10 years. That's a drop in the bucket. So Congress didn't intend a big change to the transfer pricing rules. But consider things like beat guilty and FDII. Those actually raise enormously complicated transfer pricing issues. So mm -hmm. when I think about the beat, now I've got to think about things like eligibility for the services cost method exception. Can I net my inbound and related um, inbound and outbound payments? Is this a deductible payment or something that reduces gross receipts? I've got a lot of these issues, and we'll talk more about the, the similar issues with respect to guilty and FDII. But I've got a lot of transfer pricing issues here that are raised by these non-directly impacted transfer pricing provisions. And these are all things that require a lot of transfer pricing expertise, Paige. And I think what, at least what I'm seeing is that companies are saying, listen, this is a big change for us. And we need to then take a time out and say, do we need to reevaluate our, our global policy? We've had a, an evolution of change with BEPS with master file country by country. Now we have what the U.S. has come out with reform, and now we see a lot of activity um, outside the U.S. Maybe this is a time where we can take that time out and re-examine our global framework when it comes to transfer pricing and also see if it makes sense. And so that's something that we're seeing a lot in the market when it comes to how companies are reevaluating things from a transfer pricing perspective. Yes, and that's a good way to the good segue to the next slide, Chris. I, I think that's kind of the message here is that when we look at what's been going on in the world for the past several years and what's likely to happen in the future, there's been a lot of heightened scrutiny mm -hmm. around transfer pricing issues since BEPS and even before that. Um, we've seen a lot of recent changes to the 482 regulations as well as the OECD transfer pricing guidelines that came out of the BEPS project. 
that focus isn't going to lessen any in the future. We've got additional changes coming shortly. We're expecting new final 42 regulations before the end of September. Those temporary regulations that I mentioned will be finalized. When you look at what the OECD is doing, they've still got a pretty full agenda to revise the transfer pricing guidelines, and that's not even considering their digital economy project that they're focusing on now, along with the EC, which is all about nexus, meaning permanent establishment, and transfer pricing. The, um, the ongoing state aid investigations in Europe. And now we've got all these new documentation requirements like country by country reporting and master file, much more transparency and information going to tax authorities. So I, I think you're exactly right, Chris, that, that global focus and renewed emphasis on transfer pricing is a perfect time for that right now. Yeah, I mean, I think in the sense of um, what's happening in terms of the rest of the world, possibly in light of U.S. tax reform. Certainly, as you said, the OECD and a lot of uh, foreign jurisdictions have been looking at a lot of the similar issues that tax reform addresses in terms of base erosion, stateless income. And I think we'll see more issues in light of the fact now also that the U.S. rate has dropped, um, not you know, the best rate in the world, but relative to other developed jurisdictions, 21% is pretty good. And so companies or multinational companies that are thinking about onshoring profit and moving some of that to the U.S. from foreign jurisdictions or trying to take advantage of the FDII benefit, for example, you know, may face additional scrutiny in their, their local jurisdictions in terms of their own transfer pricing. And so I think this puts a lot more pressure on companies as they're evaluating sort of what has happened with tax reform, what benefits can they drive here in the United States locally, and also having to deal with the foreign jurisdictions and you know, the fact that other countries may also be worried about base erosion out of their jurisdictions, um, that, that is just going to cause a lot more uh, uncertainty for some period of time to which hopefully the U.S. and other jurisdictions through groups like the OECD will have you know, guidance that provides some international standards for how we move forward. Mm -hmm. I agree. So as they're trying to work through their priorities, Chris, you know, your favorite topic is modeling. modeling. <laughs> <laughs> so excited to say that at the beginning. Thank you for bringing that up again. Uh, it's absolutely uh, the right place to start. H how are companies sort of breaking that down and, and, and starting to get a handle on it? Yeah, so thanks, Paige. And, and this slide's a great way to illustrate kind of how we're seeing things in the market happen where the priorities are. So to your point, when it comes to looking at the, the bigger picture there, um, the modeling exercise is the only way to really find out uh, what the answers are looking like. And so now that the toll charge is in our rearview mirror, companies are saying, I want to understand what our base case looks like. And companies are finding themselves quite surprised to see what the answers are and what it looks like. I mean, companies that were in, are now in guilty, they're like, I didn't realize how much guilty I'd have. Or all of a sudden, I didn't think I had a beat problem, but all of a sudden, I'm in beat. I'm above the 3%. And so the modeling exercise gives you that current state approach. And then you have to go through your what if scenarios and think through well, what are my options to manage my global model. And maybe I have also some other business changes that are happening that are outside my control that the company's doing. And I have to be ready for that, as well as the unknown of what's going to come from Treasury related to clarifications or notices and, and things that may change. And so you have to make sure your modeling is dynamic. It can make changes along the way. If there's something that changes, you want to be able to make it across the board. So your, your days of just a pure Excel model that does a, you know, one single calculation, 
that's going to be challenging in today's modeling exercises. You need to have something that's more dynamic. So if you kind of go down the list of some of the other areas that are core focus, IP. And so IP, not only from a U.S. perspective, but a, um, a global perspective. And you were talking about, David, uh, country by country reporting, and you're talking about the master file. I think a lot of folks, when this came out, when especially country by country came out, it was kind of a checkbox to say, oh, we've done it. Let's put that aside. I don't think people are thinking about that being a piece of evidence that can be utilized by taxing authorities to say, where are your people, where are your functions, and where are the, uh, let's say, high-value intangible generating functions at, and does that align with where your IP is at? So does your IP align with your substance? It's not a matter of just saying, where should we have our IP at? You have to look at your existing footprint, and now you have different information that's going to be out there to show what your footprint is. So as companies are evaluating where their IP is at currently, especially if they're in a situation where they might have like a CVBV structure and they're going to need to unwind that, they're going to need to think through what are my options and they're going to go through that sort of parameters. Um, moving down the list, when you talk about uh, guilty, guilty is going to be a key thing when it comes to kind of managing your effective tax rate and really understanding how much um, expense allocations are going to this guilty basket now um, versus one CFC to another, how that process is taking place. That's another area where transfer pricing comes into play. Um, beat, you mentioned and how the SCM is a key thing. And the SCM is something that, you know, a lot of firms are taking stances on right now and whether or not SCM eligible is there, but that could change. So all the things dealing with BEAT, we still have to be considerate of. This is not necessarily the end of the road here. We need to think through what the strategies are. And so that's why we talk about things like guilty management, BEAT management, foreign tax credit strategy. I'll look at the tax attributes and making sure we're managing those, but also putting ourselves in the best spot to move forward as the unknown future is, is there related to what's coming down the pipeline. That's great. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, please email the participants. Their email addresses can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you. Thank you.